The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Solnier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. I've been assured once again that we have a nice pile of questions that Jim's going to bring to the show here momentarily. Um, spring has, at least it feels like it's definitely sprung here in Colorado. We're going to have a fabulous weekend. Hope everyone out there is the same. Uh, hope you can avoid the tornadoes that have Apparently, you've been rolling through some parts of the country. That really is uh, not fun kind of weather for sure. But uh, I think this weekend is going to be definitely be a get out and do some outdoor activities in Colorado. So um, I don't have a whole lot more to say, I guess, now that I think about it. I'll bring Jim on. We don't need a lot of uh, um, extra, <laughs> if you will. And uh, we'll dive into some social security questions first. I'm sure. I'm sure. Is that my cue? That's your cue. Excellent. Once again, I just noticed I am in the office, and you are not. I'm in an office. <laughs> right, but not the office. Usually, it's the other way around, folks. Usually, I'm working at home and recording from home, and Chris is in the office where he has all his equipment. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the last two shows, just oddly, I have been in the office both mm-hmm. days and Chris has been at home. That is true. But it's, it doesn't it feel opposite. good to come into the office on an occasional Friday? Occasionally I come in on a Friday, not not often, no. Um, mm-hmm. It's just easier to stay home and not deal with the commute. But anyways, I am in the office today. You are home. Uh, hopefully it sounds okay because I'm mm-hmm. not with my regular microphone that you have for me. It's mm-hmm. a different kind of microphone, but it sounds all right. Uh, yeah. Because your office is so big. Um, it does sound a little bit different than it does when you're at home, but it's still good. I haven't, I haven't heard any complaints. Well, it's a very sterile office. I, I did the wood floor folks in the office and, and I regret that it makes it too echoey. Yeah. So my desk uh, is slate. So it has a slate top, not slate. What is this? Granite. Mm-hmm. So it's got this echoey granite desk with a total wood floor. 
And then, of course, just the plain walls. And uh, there's not enough things in here to absorb sound, so it's very echoey. It's not like I, the I penthouse recording that. studio upstairs. Say what? It's not like the penthouse recording studio upstairs. No, no. The attic, as you affectionately call the penthouse, does have a carpet. Of all silly places to put a carpet in the office, I put it in the attic. So the attic does have carpet. And since it's so tiny and full of boxes and other sound-absorbing things, it's, it's a lot better room for broadcasting. But apparently when Chris isn't here, I can't use my, my attic. Well, you'd have to move all the stuff at your desk. Yeah. Well, I don't there. want to do that. I, I don't want to have to <laughs> exactly. move everything upstairs. Okay. Anyways, enough is enough is enough on that. What we're going to do, it's a Q&A show, so I do want to welcome everybody. People should know um, Q&A shows happen every Friday where people send us the cues, and we hopefully will be able to give the A's. We begin, as we always do, with Social Security questions. I have a short one, Chris, and I have a long one. Which would you like me to read first? Hmm. Let's get the long one out of the way. Long one. All righty. This one came in in January, so we're in January now for Social Security questions. Um, oh, we gave a hint. Oh, a hint for his location? <clears throat> I can't wait. Well, the, I, if the first hint is a hint, that's an easy hint. The I second like those. One, I don't, <laughs> I'll, I'll read what he wrote. I, I don't know if you'll be able to guess it. He calls him, we gave his real name. We're going to call him George, as we always do. Uh, the hint, he said, the Great Lake State, the country's high five. The, the first part of that gave it away, but I don't understand the country's high five. But anyways, can you guess the state that this particular George is from? And then he says the country's high five? The country's, yep, countries. so uh, apostrophe yes, the country's high five with the H and F capitalized and in quotation marks. I don't hmm. get the high five. Maybe there's five lakes that are high up. I don't know. Wow. Oh, come on. You should guess Minnesota? this. It's a Great Lakes. Oh, there's there's great a Great Lakes lake there. Oh, there is a Great Lake. What is, now I'm looking for the answer. All right. Oh, I see it. What did you say? I said Minnesota. Minnesota. No, but it begins with an M. Michigan. Michigan. What do you think the country's high five? Maybe means? it's that's gotta maybe be a it's Michigan shape. Thing. Maybe it looks like the palm. You know, somebody's because it has that thumb kind of. Maybe oh, maybe so it's the, the shape the, of the, the state. State shape looks like uh, a high five. I maybe. never thought of that. I didn't. Yeah, I'll have to take out hmm. a map of the good old U.S. of A. and see if Michigan is shaped like a high five. But anyways, the Great Lake State, the country's high. He is from Michigan. Okay, it begins, hello, Jim and Chris. My son turned me on to your podcast a few months ago, and I love it. I have a question about my Social Security mm -hmm. that I have filed to start in January of 2023 when I turn 70. He sent this to us in January 2023, so he was already 70 and applied. 
This is complicated, so I hope I can explain it clearly. I turned 70 in January of 2023. I applied for Social Security benefits in September of 2022, asking them to start in January. I looked at my online Social Security statement. The estimated benefit for my age 70 was $4,100. I worked for an automaker for 42 years. So my 35 years of income will come from those 42 years. I applied in September, but now my online statement no longer displayed my estimated benefits. So the last one I can ever see was the 4,100. Near the end of December of last year, I received a letter from Social Security confirming my applications to receive benefits was approved and I'll receive my first payment in January, excuse me, first payment for the month of January and it will be received in February. Now, maybe coincidentally on my birthday, the My Social Security website shows my monthly benefit to be $4,102. Because that was so close to the 4,100 age 70 estimate that had previously been on my statement, it appeared to me that it was not reflecting the COLA increase. So I called, I called Social Security and asked about it. This is what they told me. The 4,102 is my monthly benefit and it does include the COLA, but it does not include the increase due to re- delayed retirement benefits from my age 69 to age 70. And it is just coincidence that it happened to be the same as my age 70 estimate from my previous statement. So I asked, what about that increase from age 69 to 70? I was told that after a year of receiving benefits, they will recalculate and add it to my benefit. It sounds too convoluted to be true. Can you make sense of any of this? Thank you very much. I think you answered questions like this previously on that mm-hmm. delayed retirement credit, but I am confused because he applied at 70. Yeah. So I'm curious on your answer as well. Yeah, that's going to be um, where I think Social Security made a mistake. And that is because when you apply for benefits between your full retirement age and age 70, uh, if you're have been keeping up with how Social Security works by listening to the show or some other resource, you know that as you delay benefits, you're going to receive what are called delayed retirement credits or an increase to your benefit. This is the equivalent of an 8% increase in the benefit for each year that you delay after your full retirement age. But a little nuance to that is when you claim between your full retirement age and 70, they actually calculate the benefit increase that you're going to, or they grant you formally the delayed retirement credits once a year at the beginning of the year. And so if you claim in the middle of the year, you're going to miss out on delayed retirement credits that are being credited to you monthly once they, once they apply them. Um, 
in the months up until the point that you claim. And then in January, they will finally credit you with those, you know, missing few months of delayed retirement credits. But that only applies to people who file before age 70. As part of that whole system, no matter what month you turn 70, if you claim your benefit at 70, you are immediately supposed to get your full delayed retirement credits applied no matter when during the year you turn age 70. Now, the funny thing is he turns age 70 in January, which is supposed to be the month in which they grant those delayed retirement credits anyway. So even if there wasn't this special rule for claiming at age 70, he should have been saved by the fact that he his birthday happens to be in January when he was starting benefits, and they should have given him all the delayed retirement credits up until that point. So my guess is it had to do with when he applied in September that things just, well, Social Security is a big, somewhat archaic, bureaucratic system that sometimes all the wheels don't turn at the same speed and it doesn't work as perfectly as we all would hope that it would. I suspect there was just a timing issue as they processed this claim through the system and somehow that got missed. Don't uh, despair though, because if you ask for a review of this situation, that you should be able to get either an explanation for why what I'm saying is not true, or they will fix it and grant you those missing delayed, you know, the missing payments that they owe you and um, send you a lump sum adjustment. It'll take a little while for them to do that, but the way he described their response to him makes it sound like he's going to miss out on a full year's worth of delayed retirement credits and they'll, you know, they'll increase his benefit appropriately a year from now, but that'll cause him to miss a whole year's worth of the, the 8% delayed retirement credits that he was due and uh, not, not applied to his account when he filed. That should not be happening. There, there's the, that additional 8%, which in his case, you know, is, not not a ton of money, but it's you know three hundred and some dollars a month, three hundred and twenty bucks or so a month. That's a lot. You don't want to miss out on over three thousand dollars in a year. Um, so definitely bring this to Social Security's attention. Either contact your local office or give them a call again and ask them to review this because I think this is totally incorrect the way they described it to him. He should not be having to wait for that last year of delayed retirement credits. That was my cue, wasn't it? Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I thought so on that one because you've answered questions like that in the past. And that one had me scratching my head. So... You really think that, well, obviously you wouldn't have answered it that way. You think they made a mistake. Do you think do. he has a chance of getting it fixed? I do. I think if the right technical expert reviews this, they'll discover the issue and they will correct it. Okay. Well, hopefully that works. And listener, let us know. Let us know in the yeah, future. Yeah, I'd love to hear one way or another, either confirmation that you know they eventually fixed it or what justification they should give you written reasons why they're not going to give you the delayed retirement credits that you've earned by claiming at 70. 
Um, they should give you the reasoning, and I would love to see that if they actually try to do that, because that is not how this has ever worked. Um, and I'm not aware of any changes to the system that um, would would prevent you from getting these credits immediately upon turning age 70. So, um, yeah, keep us informed one way or another. Definitely do that. All right, the next question, also from a George, but he gives his real name, did not give me a hint to share with you about this state. Um, we've talked about this state before in the past, but uh, and, and I can't think of any type of hints. I don't know of anything special about this state except that it's kind of a suburb of New York. Uh, Connecticut is where he's from. Okay. Can you think of a trivia question about Connecticut? I'm sure there's some. I just can't think of any. Um, a Yankee from that state went to King Arthur's court. And I see now that would have got me scratching my head. A Yankee from that state went to King Arthur's court. This has got yeah. to be something of a joke because it. Don't you remember King the movie? Arthur a, even Connecticut, have a, court? a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. I have no idea what you're talking about. No. Oh. Is that a play? It's a, a song. It's a show. A movie. Mm-hmm. It's a show? Yeah, I think it's a movie. A Connecticut Yankee movie. in King Arthur's Court? Never yeah. heard of it. Wow. Well, you're, okay, well, you're that like, was Chris's... kind of sheltered life, so... <laughs> Apparently, I have. Bing Crosby? Anyways, anyways folks, it, oh, that's the Great Gatsby. Now, see, now that I knew, but that's... It started as a novel, uh, apparently. started as a novel, so I didn't read the novel. I saw the movie with Bing Crosby. Okay, well, I did read The Great Gatsby years and years and years ago in high school as part of our summer reading program. That I remember. And I also, I don't remember much about the story, but I do remember I found it interesting. So uh, obviously not interesting enough where I remembered you a little bit of trivia. Uh, The other one was To Kill a Mockingbird, which I was fascinated with. That book uh, uh, really enthralled me as well. I just remember that summer reading, which we as kids complained about having to do, but now as adults fondly look back and say, oh, I get why they were doing that. They're trying to get me into reading. Okay, so he is from Connecticut. He begins, hi, Jim and Chris, longtime listener. And apparently you answered a question for him in the past. Hmm. That's nice to know. Now he has another one. So he's a, a twofer. I plan on taking Social Security at 70, and I know my wife would get Social Security if I predecease her, since it would be greater than hers. And she would get my higher delayed benefit, not just my primary insurance amount. I have a son who has been disabled since birth. He is collecting SSI. I know that he will get 75% of my Social Security once my wife and I both pass away. I've done some research But I can't find out if it is 75% of my benefit with the delayed retirement credits, or will it just be 75% of my primary insurance amount? Thank you. Thank you and Jim. So glad your recent surgery went well. Oh, well, thank you, listener. This came in in January, if you don't know. And if everybody remembers, I had hot surgery on January 4th. And I'm still breathing and my heart is still ticking. So all is going good. So I've got, I think, some good news based on a comment that he made in that question that I want to clear up. um, And then I'll attack his actual question. Um, 
he mentions uh, he know he said he knew he his son his disabled son would get seventy five percent of his social security once he and his wife die. Um, it, they both don't have to die for this to happen. It's it's he's the number holder. He's the one with the benefit that others are claiming upon. And it's when he dies that that will open up a survivor benefit for his wife and a child benefit, a surviving child benefit for his child, which normally the child would have to be uh, much younger, um, under the age of 18 or under 19, if still going to high school. But if disabled before the age of 22, the disabled child is treated just like the minor child is for life. And uh, so that's why his child of any age being disabled at birth, he mentioned, so clearly meets the disabled uh, classification, um, can receive 75% of his benefit once he passes, even if his wife is still alive. So they would simultaneously pay those two benefits. As a as a side note, again, before I clarify his, his actual question, um, when he's claiming, once he starts claiming, that will open up a potential child benefit for his disabled son that might help him. Uh, he doesn't give me any of the numbers, but it may very well be bigger than that SSI that he's collecting, so he would get a raise even while uh, this person is still living because of the child benefit. Now, the, the child benefit while you're living is still is only 50%, whereas the surviving child benefit goes up to 75%, kind of like the spousal benefit is 50%, but the surviving spouse benefit goes up to a 100%. So I wanted to point that out too. He didn't mention a child benefit while he's still living. Maybe he wasn't aware of that. The answer to his question, though, is unlike a widow's or widower's benefit, so a traditional spousal uh, surviving spouse benefit, sorry to stumble there, uh, that surviving spouse will get the benefit of any delayed retirement credits. In other words, the amount that surviving spouse will receive will be 100% of what he was receiving, um, not just his PIA or full retirement age amount. That's different than spousal benefits, remember. Spousal benefits are only based on the PIA. So that's good news for a widow widower in that that survivor benefit will will be whatever he was collecting, including all of his delayed retirement credits. However, other benefits are still based on the PIA. So he'll get 75% of his now deceased father's benefit um, as the child survivor benefit, 75% of the PIA. So the delayed retirement credits won't help the... Um, surviving child in this particular case. So um, all this is very convoluted and the rules are complex. So I don't, I totally get uh, how he could be confused and have trouble finding this clarity, but that's the, that's the scoop as I understand it. And that's your cue again. Ah, okay. I wasn't on mute that time. (laughs) Just sitting silently. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was looking for the new question of the week. You know how I like to do that? Mm-hmm. And we got a couple in on buffered ETFs. Apparently people are researching them. And I think I'm going to turn them into an EDU show. So rather than doing it as a new question of the week, 
I wanted to find others. And they're all social security related. I mean, I'm, I've gone back one, two, three, four, 14 questions. And they're all social security related, except huh. for these two new questions of the week. Um, so guess pick we're, guess we're not Thursday, gonna do one. <laughs> Tuesday, or Friday. Oh, are we going to do another social security question? Well, I don't have a new question of the week that doesn't have to. I guess well, I can go just, into last week. We can just go on and. All right, so no new question of the week? It's your call. I'm, I'm fine either way. Either way is fine. All right, well, we'll skip the new question of the week then per Chris's recommendation. I said I'm fine either way. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe people won't want to hear three social security questions in a row. I have no maybe. idea. All right. So let's get to a non-new question of the week. This question, see if I can get... Um, oh, I should be able to come up with a hint for this state. Um, oh, wow. I'm, I should be taken out and flogged for not being able to come up with a trivia question of this state. Hmm. Oh, in the turn of the 20th century, so early 1900s, who can't follow that, a city in this state suffered a massive flood of molasses. You've only told that story like a hundred times. Oh, did I? Yeah. It's in Massachusetts, Well, let me come up right? with another hint then. Didn't that happen in Boston? Yeah, it happened in Boston. Yeah. Um, and, so and you told me that based on that, that like when it's really hot in the summertime and you're in that neighborhood, you can still kind you of can smell, smell it. The so yeah, apparently it was a hell of a lot. I got a book on that. I should read that. Maybe that'll be the next book I read. I, I thought Reading you had book read that writing. book. You read the book? No, I thought you had read it. That's why you told us the story. No, we knew ago. that story growing up. They, everybody oh. shared that story. Everybody knew that it was always specials for the great molasses flood. But I bought a book a couple of years ago specifically on the molasses flood. I think that will become my next book. Hmm. Right now I'm reading a book on English history uh, in England. Um, they got some. They did some really weird things back then. They, they have quite the history of that, that country. I'll give you that much. But uh, anyways, once I'm done that book, maybe I'll read the, the molasses book. Okay, this gentleman, we will call him George. He is from the fine state of molasses. Uh, the fine state of Massachusetts, <laughs> not molasses. Uh, and, uh, don't laugh at me. No, it's Friday and it's late. It's not late. It's 2 it's in the afternoon. 2.46, rather. It's, it's late. That's late in the afternoon. All right. Anyways, sorry. He is not from the state of molasses. He is the state from Massachusetts. Let us begin. So here's the question. It begins, at the risk of beating a deadish horse, which is, I think is a, a shout out to how I beat a horse to death, and Chris says you beat the dead horse. He's, he's kind of taking the middle ground there with dead-ish. It's not dead, but it ain't doing too well. At the risk of beating a deadish horse, I have an inherited IRA RMD question that I don't recall getting discussed on the podcast. My mother died in November of 2021 at 94. So, folks, she was past her required beginning date. For her, at her age, she would have been required to
to take RMDs at 70 and a half. This is going way back then when it was 70 and a half. It's 73 now. So her required beginning date would have been April 1st of the year following the year she turned 70 and a half. She died at 94. She died way past her required beginning date. Keep that in mind. Her traditional IRA had me, my brother, and my sister, age 66, 70, and 72, each as one-third beneficiaries. Prior to the SECURE Act, Chris, they could have stretched the IRA over their remaining life expectancies. Mm -hmm. Each of them would have been able to, to use their own life expectancy. But after the secure, they are going to be subject to the 10-year rule. But because the mom died after her required beginning date, and because of the clarity that the IRS issued in 2022, they are subject to required minimum distributions Mm -hmm. for the first nine years years, even though they can keep the IRA open for 10 years, because the mom passed 94, excuse me, passed her required beginning date and died, the people who inherited it have to take required minimum distributions for the first nine years. So far, so good, Chris? Yep, sounds good so far. Okay. My mother did take her required minimum distribution prior to passing away in 2021. Okay, so far so good? Yep. So, required minimum distributions for these people must begin December 31st of 2022. That's when they have to start taking their RMDs. 2022's RMDs for inherited IRAs were waived. Do you remember that, Chris? Yeah, that was that narrow case where that specific situation, RMDs were waived. Not RMDs for everyone, but just RMDs for those inherited as applies to this person. Right. Pretty much just people who inherited IRAs from people who died after their required beginning date and they're subject to the 10-year rule. Just that little class of beneficiaries, which happens to be the the beneficiaries that these three people, or the, the case that these three people find them in. So then he goes on and he says, in February of 2022, the IRA was split by the custodian into three inherited IRAs, one for each sibling. We thought we understood the calculation of each of our first year RMDs to be taken in 2022. He sent us this email in October of 22. That might have been right around the time that that was finalized when the IRS waived the RMDs. I think it was October because I was in Ohio. And I was in Ohio in, in October. So this, this email might have came in right before the IRS mm-hmm. came out and pretty much said, if you missed 2021 or 2022's RMD and you inherited an IRA from someone who passed died after their required beginning date and you're subject to the 10-year rule, you don't have to take an RMD. 
This might have came in, Chris, his question, as you read in a minute, right before that rule came out. I don't know. So he continues. We thought we understood the calculation of each of our first year RMDs we need to take in 2022. But we're wondering if it matters that on December 31st of 2021, the IRA had not yet been split into separate IRAs. Let me pause there. It is not an issue that it wasn't split by the year of death. You have until December 31st of the year following death to split the IRA. It would be unfair if they didn't do it that way, folks. What if someone died January 1st of 2021 and his mom, say, died December 30th of 2021? The person inheriting from someone who died January 1st would have the whole year. The person in the other situation would have one day. So you had until December 31st of 2022 to break that IRA into smaller IRAs. So you didn't miss any deadline there. Then he goes on and asks, uh, the IRA not been split. Is the 2020 is our 2022 RMD going to be based on my mom's age when she died and the total value of the IRA in the year she died? Or do we base it on the value in of February of 2022 when we split the IRA into our smaller IRAs? A lot of moving parts here. He is totally wrong on that last question of February. So just knock that listener and listeners as a whole out of your head. The value of their RMD, and here's where it gets tricky, Chris, because the 2022 RMD was waived. Mm -hmm. But let's pretend it wasn't so we can answer his question. If the IRS had not waived their 2022, essentially waived by getting rid of the penalty, if they didn't do that, they broke the IRA up before December 31st of 2022, so that's perfect. So each beneficiary gets to base the RMD on their age. Although they cannot stretch for the rest of their life, they can stretch for the first nine years. So the 66-year-old is going to take the smallest RMD and the 72-year-old will have to take the largest RMD because they can use their own age for the first nine years. And what they are going to do is use the value of the IRA the year preceding. So they broke it up in 2022. They simply have to look at the value on December 31st of 2021, essentially divide that by three. And that's the value that all three of them will use to determine their RMDs. The RMDs will not be the same because they're Two years upon an age, each of them, there's a 60, excuse me, more than two years. There's a 66-year-old, there's a 70-year-old, and then there's a 72-year-old. So they're each going to have different RMDs, but the value amount will be the same, at least for the first RMD, if you had to take it in 2022. 
Subsequent RMDs will be different because your guys are going to, I assume, invest them in different holdings. So some IRAs will be larger than the other and everybody's RMDs will start to differ. But you always look at the December 31st value of the previous year. Now let's chat just real quickly, Chris, on what they need to do now. Let's assume, because they wrote this to us at the beginning of October, it dawned on them that their RMD was waived for 2022. Now, how are they going to do their 2023 RMDs? As I just stated, all three of them have an IRA that was broken up in 2022. But in 2021, they did have a December 31st value. Excuse me? Let me back up. I don't know why I went down that road. Not I'm sure. glad I picked up on it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. You didn't I was pick about up to on say it, something. but I did. <laughs> what they're going to do is take the value of all three of their IRAs, each of them, the 66-year-old, the 70-year-old, and the 72-year-old, and look at the value of their personal IRA at the end of 2023. So they are, excuse me. No, I'm right. No, no at the end of 2022. Wow, Chris, I'm, I'm, I didn't have my coffee today, obviously. So in February of 2022, folks, and I apologize for how screwed up this answer is, in February of 2022, folks, they broke the IRAs up. They have to take a 2023 RMD. Each of them on December 31st of 2022 had their own IRA. Each of them will look at that value and each of them will go to the single life table that they would have gone to the year before where they got their divisor and they would subtract one from that divisor again and divide it by the account balance of their December 31st, 2022 personally owned inherited IRA. And by personally owned, in case someone wants to point that out, the IRA is not their personal IRA. They are a beneficiary of the IRA, but it's their inherited IRA. They each have their own inherited IRA, and they will look at the December 20, excuse me, the December 31st, 2022 account balance to determine their 2023 RMD. Whew, man. I almost screwed up twice on that, but I think I made it through. What do you think? I didn't listen to every word, but most of the words I heard were correct. The one <laughs> I was going to call you out on, you you discovered yourself and fixed I it. I quickly so. picked up on yes. that. And I was like, wait a right. minute. No, 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 no. That makes, right. that makes absolutely no sense. Okay. Let's get to another question. I'm trying to see. I think there was another IRA question that I had in here. Um, actually, this isn't an IRA question. It's more of a tax question, but it's a tax planning question. So I think we can answer it without Bob or one of the CPAs on the show. Okay. Uh, this one came from, oh, he doesn't give a state. Okay, well, no problem, uh, but it came in September. Hi, Jim and Chris. I am a financial advisor and a fan of your show. Thanks for all you do. 
I have a question about Roth conversions, both a general and specific question. The long version is, how do you guys go about deciding the appropriate amount for a Roth conversion in any given year? If you think about it, there are so many factors in play. A client's expected income in that year, their expected future income, their social security, their future RMDs, the number of years between the client's current age and 72, when future RMDs will kick in, it's now 73. Not to mention the amount of income that can be increased before pushing the client into the next tax bracket or even IRMA brackets. And I bet I've missed other factors as well. So before we get into his second question, he's asking, how do we do that with all of these variables? We're going to do it the same way everyone who's listening to this, who's a do-it-yourselfer, should do it. You try to take these variables as best you can and project them forward as best you can. It is not an exact science. When it comes to Roth conversions, and Chris has said this many, many times on the show, if the tax rates stay the same for all intent and purposes... It doesn't matter if you convert now or withdraw the assets later. If you walk through the math, it all comes to the same, assuming the return is the same and tax rates stay the same. When we work with clients, we go a little bit differently, though. We have all those variables, but we also have to chat with the clients. What is their personal belief on future tax rates? Or are they working now and in a very high tax bracket? Maybe they're in the top bracket or the next to the top bracket. But the analysis we run shows in the future, they're definitely going to be in a a lower bracket when they retire. We call that the tax planning window. Maybe that low bracket will only continue until RMD age at 73 now, you pointed out. Uh, in your email, RMDs was, was a key trigger here. So we will look at our data and try to project if we envision a tax planning window. And then we also will chat with the clients of what are their personal beliefs on future tax rates? Do you feel they're going to go lower? Most don't. Most people feel they're only going to go higher. So they want us to favor Roth conversions now. But then we will pay attention to bracket creep to see if it makes sense to go into a higher bracket or not, but also IRMA brackets. Sometimes it makes sense to pay the IRMA for one year in an effort to get more into a Roth or maybe for a couple of years to get more into a Roth because a forward-looking analysis shows RMDs will push them into IRMA forever. So maybe we voluntarily go into IRMA brackets for a couple of years, two years, three years, four years, five years, whatever it may come to, in an effort to keep them from permanently being IRMA through the rest of their retirement. There's, those types of calculations can only be gleaned from forward-looking data. So we always tell people, in order for us to do a tax projection for you, we really should first... Do a retirement projection. 
even if can I retire isn't a question. You may have ample assets to retire. We still need to project all these variables that this financial advisor rightly pointed out. And the only way we can project all those variables is to start collecting and analyzing your situation today, put you into our financial planning software to generate all these data points. And then, yes, put them into different planning software for taxes and chat with clients about these variables. We're never going to be able to guess them all. But there's one crucial element that I haven't mentioned yet, which is where we truly do begin. And I encourage anyone who is doing this on their own, whether you're another advisor like this gentleman who wrote to us. Well, I don't know if it's a gentleman or gentlewoman. Um, they just gave initials. So whether it's a man or a woman who's doing the advising or you yourself, listeners, as a do-it-yourselfer. Whenever I used to be involved in this and slowly my role at the firm, as everyone knows, is being pulled out and I have to spend more time running the business than actually meeting with clients. But when I did, I would always ask them, who are we tax planning for? And that's a crucial element this listener didn't include in their list. And what I mean by that, and I came up with a concept that I call your 210 tax ordering number. Not a very brief or, or, or fun little verbiage that doesn't roll off your tongue that well, but it's the 210 tax planning number. And what I mean by that, when you optimize taxes, you often are going to have to pay the taxes at some point in time. The question is when. And are we trying or are you trying to re reduce taxes now for two of you as a couple or later for one of you as a widow widower or hopefully a lot later as an inheritance to perhaps children? Two, one, zero. That's why I call it your 210 tax ordering number. And don't lose sight of this, listeners and financial planner listener. Don't just start running projections based on your client's current situation. All those elements you listed are forward-looking elements for the most part, which will change and vary and alternate all through their lives. But what someone has to also look at is what will it be from a tax perspective at the death of the first spouse? And what type of assets do you have? Do you have mostly always taxable assets? Those are assets inside IRAs, 401ks, 403bs, 457s, things like that. We call them always taxable because when you take money out, you're always going to pay income tax on them. When money comes out as a couple, it most likely will be in a lower bracket than it would be as a widow widower, especially if they're ages of the deceased husband and wife. In this case, the husband died first. The deceased husband and wife are close in age. The money that she, the surviving spouse, will need to take out as an RMD will be nearly identical, but pushed through much smaller brackets because they're single, pushing the wife into higher tax liabilities. And then, of course, when children inherit retirement accounts, always taxable retirement accounts, 
They can no longer stretch for the most part, as we talked about, and they might be forced to take money out, as the previous listener's case illustrated, in a short 10-year period, forcing them into even higher brackets. Well, if you want to lower taxes for the zero, it means as a couple, the two, you are going to voluntarily pay more in taxes. Last year, sad situation where our then oldest client at 98 passed away. But literally, not literally on her deathbed, but in hospice, we chatted and she did a deathbed, if you will. She signed it in her hospice bed, but she still lived another month or so. A Roth conversion because it made much more sense for her to pay taxes on a full conversion of her IRA was still going to be less in taxes that her son would have paid if he inherited it and had to take it out in his brackets. So that was clearly putting the zero ahead of the two, or in this case, one, because there was only one widow left. So these are the types of things that you also have to look for. And then get your clients to know, and you do it yourself, or get yourself to know, this is not a perfect exact science. Things can change. An unknown dividend can come in at the end of the year and screw up your Irma bracket, because that's a cliff bracket. One dollar over, boom, you're in Irma. If you get really close to that Irma bracket, if you don't give yourself a little bit of wiggle room, and you get an unexpected dividend coming in from one of your taxable investments, Boom, before you know it, you could be subject to Irma. Anyways, Chris, I've gone on enough about this. I want you to get in and chat because you do work with clients on a regular basis still. And this is how I look at things. And I know as a group, when we do our group planning, as a firm, we always plan as a group. There's no individual planning. People run all ideas off of other advisors. So when we plan as a group here, Chris, these are some of the things we look at. But have I missed anything? What are, what are your suggestions with all these variables? How What would you say? Yeah, I think uh, if, to back up to maybe some of his original concern about how do you deal with all the variables, obviously a lot of these are going to be assumptions. So using reasonable assumptions is where you'd start, but you can't fool yourself and, into thinking that you've perfectly – predicted things like the rate of return on accounts and how much, excuse me, income you're going to get at a certain point in the future, all that kind of stuff. Um, you're going to have to, you know, realize there's, there's a fudge factor in there. There's, there's going to be something deviation. So you don't want to put together a plan that only works if your predictions are exactly true. You want to look at, um, maybe threats and, and, uh, maybe look at uh, different scenarios and try to identify which of these things bothers me the most if it happens. We call it, you know, kind of address, addressing your maximum regret or trying to reduce that so that if that thing happens, you've taken some steps to mitigate it. And what I mean by that is kind of alluding to what, what Jim was talking about with the, the 210 ordering. Sometimes there's, you know, some threat for the couple some threat for the uh, survivor, but just a horrible tax situation for the kids. Well, then you're going to do planning around, you know, trying to mitigate that because you 
obviously can't fix it from the grave once you're gone. You're going to have to proactively do something. But uh, we looked at kind of what we we call hypotheticals, right? What if they both live to a ripe old age? What if they uh, one of them dies real soon and then leaves a survivor for an extended period? What kind of threats um, from a tax standpoint exist there? And and what happens when they're both gone? How how uh, ugly is that tax picture? And so I think people get too uh, um, focused on doing planning using their default mortality age. And um, I I think you miss a lot of threats that could certainly be addressed uh, when you don't look at these hypotheticals. So that's one piece of encouragement I would make to people is, is look at those different scenarios and, and see, and, and if you're lucky, none, none have a particular threat, none are particular scary. And then now you're just making a little, you know, little nudges here and there to improve the tax situation. But sometimes you'll reveal, oh my gosh, that's just horrible. If that happens, we better do something about that. And so now you have a goal. Let's reduce the overwhelming tax burden for this situation, for this hypothetical. And that really helps clarify what would make sense as a strategy. It can be overwhelming to think of everything simultaneously. Uh, You kind of lose the ability to draw a conclusion when there's too much stuff swirling around. So by doing it this way and looking for the threats and kind of prioritizing what you want to attack first, that'll focus you on what you need to try to mitigate. And so that, you know, I think that'd be helpful. That's, that's helped us focus uh, in our office when we attack these things for people. Yeah, it's never going to be an exact science when it comes to tax planning. I jokingly, when I used to meet with clients, say, uh, this is what we feel you should do. And, and the client would share with us if they agree or not. And eventually we would come up with the decision, what ultimately we're going to do, what strategy we're going to adopt and how we're going to move forward. And then I would jokingly say to them, and I can let you know at your funeral if you made the right decision. Because literally, that's the thing. If, if we knew when we were going to pass away and we knew exactly what the government was going to do with taxes and what returns were exactly going to be, this would be easy. But we don't know any of that. We can figure it out once you pass away if, wow, should they have converted in 2023 or not? Well, let's go back and see. But that's just really getting into detail that doesn't matter. When you're dead, you're dead. So who cares? Right now, you have to do the best you can and take all of these elements into account. But especially to me, the two tax number is the most important because oftentimes, Chris, you'll admit when we show people the widow, widower tax penalty, some people aren't going to be impacted by it at all. Others, it's significant. And that changes their whole outlook on life as a couple. Mm-hmm. They start to share with us like, wow, what? okay, we... I want to get that lower or we want to get that lower. And what do we have to do? Well, oftentimes it's going to be predominantly Roth conversions, but there can be other strategies. The main reason that there's usually a widower or tax penalty is you have a married couple close in age with the vast majority of their savings in always taxable IRAs and 401ks. If you fall into that situation, you're probably going to have a widow, widow, or tax penalty. How serious? Don't know until the numbers are crunched. And it's usually when they see that, that they start saying, okay, we'll pay more taxes now as a couple. 
And that flies in the face of most conventional tax planning. Most conventional tax planning is helping people today get taxes down. And we're looking tomorrow. Okay. Um, if we have time for one more, they're both planning mm -hmm. related and you can choose which one. Or if we don't have time, I won't get into them. No, we can do another one. Well, do you want one who had a question on determining the fund number more than 10 years from retirement or a question on our entire process and could we improve it if we used Monte Carlo? Hmm. I think you should flip a coin. <laughs> Those could both be interesting. <laughs> they, they both give pretty good hints, too, mm -hmm. for their state. So mm. can't choose by that one either. How about um, give each hint, and whichever one I get, we do that one. <laughs> one is from the state with the only corn palace, C-O-R-N, corn palace. Or one who lives in a state that was once described as a keg tapped at both ends. I have no idea on the second one, so it sounds like we're doing the one from South Dakota. How the hell did you know South Dakota had a Cohen Palace? It's in Mitchell. Did you Google that? No. Seriously, you didn't Google it? No, I... Because I had to Google it. Happened to have a very close relationship with a former Miss South Dakota, so I know all those things. Oh, I didn't know that, really? Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay, so yes, South Dakota wins. Sorry, uh, the other one. I'll, I'll ask that <laughs> one later. I thought that was a pretty cool, cool hint. A keg tapped at both ends. Okay, it begins. Hi, Jim and Chris. We are 10 years from our mandatory retirement. We will have great pension income. We like your ideas and we're starting to put together our own spreadsheets. Gotta love these do-it-yourself engineers. Putting together our own spreadsheets and calculations. I might have just missed this in your recent series but I'm trying to determine the portfolio number. We never had, and he put the portfolio in quotation marks. I think he means the fund number because we don't have a portfolio number. And we did a whole series of shows on the fund number. So I do have to make an assumption here. He's talking about the fund number. Would you agree or am I missing something you think? Mm, I probably have to hear the rest of the question to maybe add some context. Maybe that'll okay. reveal what he meant. Maybe I've missed it, but how do you determine, quote unquote, the portfolio number if you are 10 years out? Should we use the current number we calculated should we take the current number and add a certain percent every year for inflation? When you guys use that term, and again, I don't know what he's talking about. When you use that term, what exactly is included from the viewpoint of someone that is 10 years from retirement? Thank you. Gives his name, but we will call him George. I think he's talking about his fund number. I don't think so. I think he's talking about the starting number that you start with before you start removing things. 
I think he's trying to figure out what is what what should he use for a a portfolio value on day one of retirement. Oh, for the see-through portfolio as you calculate your yeah, fund and then number. we start pulling things out of that to finally get to the fund number. But I think that's why he's we talk about the portfolio as it starts, and then we we work towards the fund number. So I don't think it's I don't think it's fund number. I think he's I think that's what it is. Um, which I guess that one's going to be fairly easy to answer, and then we can decide whether. Maybe he meant something else. And- well, I agree with you now. As you explain it, again, you do this now. I'm becoming more and more removed from this process, but you are correct. I, I think your approach is right. I assume he meant the fund number. He's talking the- – that's why he put the portfolio in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. He's talking about the beginning value that we then start breaking out into individual positions – see-through portfolio, as we call it, break your $1 million, $2 million, $3 million portfolio into smaller portfolios, one for the delay period minimum dignity floor, another for the long-term minimum dignity floor shortage, if any, another one for aging reserve as you grow older, guaranteed inheritance, a buffer, all those little positions. But you're right, Chris, it begins with the total available retirement and assets, both liquid and illiquid. So perfect. You can then address his question because I agree with you. Yeah. So if you're out from retirement, you're not there yet. Um, You're going to have to make some kind of projection. Now, if you're retiring next month, we don't have to project very much because your current portfolio value is pretty darn, you know, close to what it's going to be a month from now, um, barring anything drastic. But when you're 10 years out, your current portfolio, your savings at that moment are likely to be very different than what they are 10 years from now. Well, there's to simplify it, there's only two things that affect it. Two things. Assuming you're not going to ever pull money out of retirement accounts while you're working. I'll assume that's the case. If you've got really good jobs with mandatory retirement and big pensions, you've, I would assume you're living within your means and you're going to leave the retirement monies alone. So there's only two factors that determine what your portfolio is going to grow to. You know what it is today. It's a starting amount. And then your contributions between now and then. So over the next 10 years, you'll have to project what contributions you're going to make. And oftentimes it's a percentage of your income. So it's going to be whatever your income growth projections are over the coming 10 years. A percentage of that will be going into your 401a, 401k, TSP, you know, whatever it might be, um, and the assumed rate of return. Those two things, the contributions you're going to be making and the rate of return that you use. The contributions are pretty predictable, assuming you have pretty stable employment numbers where you can predict those things. The rate of return, you know, that's going to be up to your, you know, decision on how reasonable you want to to make that. So um, that's how I would approach it. That being said, the reason he's trying to come to that number, I think it's pretty, it's a little too early. Um, coming up with an estimate, just so you know, generally what you're going to be working with is one thing. Taking it to then run through our process to start stripping things away, you're now starting with a questionable portfolio value. Because over 10 years, slight errors in your assumptions for things like rate of return and your contributions could 
really affect that portfolio value. So getting to the point where you're stripping away and having X amount for aging and LTC and Y amount for a delay period if you have it and and guaranteed inheritance and reserve and all that trying to get to your fund number, I think it might be a little too early because I think you're just you're dealing you're starting with too messy of a number. Um, I think it's really when you get to within about five years, things tighten up and you get to start looking at yourself in the mirror saying, you know, we kind of have what we have. We're going to hopefully grow it a little bit between between now and when we hit retirement. But but we we are starting to see pretty clearly what we've got to work with. And then you can start doing it from there and then and then tweak it at least one more time before you actually retire to to cement your conclusions. That's how I would approach it. And assuming that was the question he was asking, that that starting portfolio value, that's that's how I would look at that. I agree. I think, yeah, I think we covered that all for him. I don't think I need to add anything else. Okay. Um, yeah, I think so. I think you, you, you did a, a fine. Perfect. I'm not going to say anything else. I like <laughs> okay. it. Okay. Um, is there time for that other state's question or not? I have no idea how much time we're going to do it. If it's lengthy, it's probably not going to work. Oh, then we got a short one. Let me let me give a short past one. This. I think we could do one more short one. We get a short one in. Okay, mm-hmm. give me one second. I got to scroll. I was just looking at it. Okay, this one could could definitely be short. It uh, no hint, no state hint. Okay, it came in November. Well, I wrote that it came in November of 2023. So obviously oh. I made a mistake. It is probably November of 2022. Uh, or be really interesting if you sent us something mm-hmm. from the future. <laughs> Hi, Jim and Chris. I am 58 and currently have my MDF floor guaranteed income consists it's consisting of a pension, Social Security, and two lifetime income annuities. But even with all that, I need an additional $20,000 a year. So 58-year-old folks, retired, he has, how could, he can't be collecting Social Security now. I think he's projecting into the future Mm -hmm. uh, at 58. Mm -hmm. But he has two lifetime income annuities and a pension in Social Security, and he's going to be $20,000 short. What are your thoughts if I bought a $500,000 30-year treasury bond paying 44%, not 40, God, that would be great, 40%, paying 4%, could I consider this the additional guaranteed income that I am going to need to make the $20,000 shortage? This $500,000 will represent just 25% of all my investable assets. I feel this plan would give me no market risk because I absolutely want but do not require me to part with any more money to an insurance company. So he doesn't want money to go to an insurance. He's already got two Mm -hmm. annuities, Chris. He's Mm -hmm. not looking for a a, a third. Would we count half a million dollars in a 30-year treasury paying 4%? as secure income for his MDF shortage. He goes on. Even if I live to 100, the bonds would not mature until I'm 88. 
And I feel there would be plenty of money left to keep the 20000 per year coming in. So he's saying 30 years from now, he'll have $500,000 and he's only going to need $20,000 a year. You're probably thinking some of what I'm thinking, Chris. Mm -hmm. He says, bottom line, could I do this? And would you consider the 30-year treasury bond a form of lifetime guaranteed income? Before I let Chris jump into what I think he's going to end up mentioning and talking about, let me say, I have nothing against a 30-year treasury bond as a form of lifetime guaranteed income. It theoretically passes my measure, mm-hmm. the, what we call secure income. I often I came up with my own definition, and it satisfies it, Chris, to an extent. If he lives longer than the 30 years, it's no longer secure because it can drop. He does make a good point. There might be enough money left that he could continue it. But to me, secure income, folks, is first predetermined and known. There's no ambiguity. You know what you're getting every year. He's going to get 4%, 4% of $500,000 every year. So he satisfied the first one. It's predetermined and known. Number two, the income can never drop. If it moves at all, it can only move higher. Now, this income is not going to move higher because the stated uh, coupon rate is is at issue, and that's what he's going to get, 4%. Theoretically, could the government default and not pay the 4% anymore? Yes, but would it? Probably not. So I don't think it could ever drop. Even though theoretically it could, I wouldn't worry about it. Number three is that secure income is not backed by your personal assets. It's backed by a deep-pocketed third party. Now, this gets a little bit cloudy Mm -hmm. because it's still his $500,000. Even though he gave it to the government, he only loaned it to the government. The government should or is supposed to make him whole in 30 years by giving him back the 500,000. Could the government break that promise over the next 30 years? Theoretically, they could. There's a lot of talk that someday the government may have to default on debt. I do point out if the government is defaulting on debt, insurance companies are not going to get out of that uh, scathe free either. And they may end up having to cut what they pay back. So I don't want to necessarily throw this 30-year treasury bond idea of his under the bus and imply that an insurance product is more stable than a government bond. I don't think the government would ever default on their debt, but I can't say for certain what the next 30 years bring. But I have an issue with what happens when the bond matures. I don't know what... 500000 in 30 years is going to be worth in today's dollars. And I don't know what his $20,000 a year of minimum dignity floor expenses will have grown to, what inflationary rates would have impacted those expenses. They'll be different than the general inflationary rate, if you will, on his 500000 because minimum dignity floor might go up even higher. But I don't know if there is going to be enough money to keep that going. What if in 20 years, the 20,000 is $100,000 of expenses? 
He's only going to have five more years or to 92. That's what's running through my mind. What's running through your mind, Chris? Um, first, I agree that, you know, just shaving off the interest or coupon payments from a treasury bond, I think, satisfies the definition of secure income close enough to be considered secure income. So that part, I think, is fine. Uh, what you do with it at maturity, there's that little wrinkle, which you pointed out. But I'm concerned about his projections of that $20,000 need. I have never seen a shortage stay $20,000 a year for life in a minimum dignity floor coverage situation. Unless you're using very low, and I would call out likely too low, inflation assumptions for your minimum dignity floor expenses. Now, I admit they're assumptions, and your assumptions might be better than my assumptions. But when you look at what's in the minimum dignity floor, there's one main category, healthcare, and then a couple of other areas of the minimum dignity floor, like food, which are commodities related, that there's a lot of evidence that those, um, you know, inflate faster than average inflation, faster than what Social Security would go up, faster than what most pensions would go up. So for you to say the need is 20000 forever, I'm not sure that's true. I, I'm skeptical uh, that that's the case. And if that's the case, you're not solving your problem with a treasury bond that pays exactly the same amount every single year for the next 30 years. So I would I would reexamine that and make sure that you're comfortable uh, with that situation because you might just simply be using the wrong secure income tool for the problem. Not it's not so much that the the treasury bond isn't maybe reasonably considered secure income. It's that it's not necessarily it's it's like getting a flat spia. Um, I know it's different at the end, but the payment, it's the same issue we run into when people try to use a flat, non-growing income annuity to solve a shortage. It might work for a while, but inflation will come back to bite you and the minimum dignity floor will start climbing beyond and you'll still find yourself with a long-term shortage. So um, I think he's got to deal with that. Uh, in the whole story, which I know I don't, I don't, that really wasn't his question, but that was a concern that I had when he mentioned his method for covering that 20,000. Yeah, I totally agree on that as well. I, he, he's in kind of, I don't want to say he's in a bind, but when you retire as early as he did, he's got such a long projection period. If he mm-hmm. was 68, or 70 or 72 talking about buying a 30-year bond, I might be more receptive to it. But I would still worry, as Chris does, with the inflationary projections on that. I know uh, in our practice, these are numbers that we review on a regular basis to see. And one of the things that we try to do is calculate what the potential increase on his minimum dignity floor shortage is his own personal rate of inflation, if you will, and then encourage people to buy a single premium media annuity with that amount of a built in inflation adjustment to try to battle this issue of inflation. And is 20,000 going to be enough forever? Uh, and then try to address it there. 
he shares though that he doesn't want to give more money to an insurance company. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm guessing he has about two million of remaining assets because he said a million is no half a million is going to take him uh, a, a quarter of his his uh, available dollars. So he has two million in total assets. He's loath to give any more of that to an insurance company. It's it's. Did you say he was? Was he single? I forget um, now. Does it indicate? Does no? He just says he's fifty-eight. Doesn't tell me if he's single. Hmm. I am also a little surprised that with the list of secure income he has, that he's having that much trouble covering his minimum dignity floor. Maybe well, he doesn't tell us how much of a pension, how much Social Security, and how much he's getting from the annuities. I don't even know if he's retired yet, Chris. I just assumed he was. But the more I read this, maybe he's doing the calculation now and prep for a future. Well, no, he's saying if he bought the annuity now, so he's got, excuse me, the bond now. So he must be retired now at 58 because he's saying even if I live to 100, the bond won't mature until I'm 88. So he's got to be retired now. He's just not earning Social Security yet. Yeah, so there's going to be a form of a delay period. And if he's worried about longevity with the inflation pressures we're talking about, that's an argument for delaying his Social Security. Then instead of creating more secure income, he can devote that those dollars to filling in the delay period. And instead of, you know, so he's not giving money to insurance company. Effectively, what he's doing is, quote, giving money in a way to the, and I'm doing air quotes is what I meant there, uh, the uh, Social Security system to get a larger inflation-adjusted benefit, which might solve better the long-term stresses on the gap. And he uses money, instead of in this longer-term strategy with the Treasury bond, just to budget for coverage during his delay period. So uh, we don't have all the numbers really to give. No, we don't, uh, we don't have better, enough. But, and but I'd look I'm at those I'm struggling on how he says he... Yeah. Also has social. The only thing I can think of is he has a he's a FERS retiree. I'm guess I'm saying so he has a government pension and he's getting his social security offset at 58, which will go away at 62 mm-hmm. until he gets his, to his full retirement age at 67. This is the only way that I can mm-hmm. see him collecting social security right now with a pension. Well, he's not collecting and, it. He's getting a FERS supplement, maybe supplement, whatever so, you want to call it, yeah. but. Yeah. It's the only thing that I can think of, or the Social Security is factored in later in his calculation. Mm-hmm. The long and the short of it, listener, is I know you're hesitant to give more money to an insurance company. And true, if you bought the bond, one thing you don't mention, the asset is yours. If you die, uh, someone will mm-hmm. get the inheritance from it. If you put the cheapest way to buy an annuity is not to get any type of uh, return of premium if you pass away or cash rebate, uh, cash refund on an annuitized annuity. You get more bang for your buck by not doing that. So I can see your hesitancy on, on purchasing another annuity because perhaps of that and you want access to those dollars. Just be aware. You put the half a million in, but monitor your $20,000 shortage throughout the rest of your retirement and be prepared maybe to put more money in future bonds if you're going to keep doing this type of, of bond ladder almost. Uh, just I wouldn't rely, like Chris says, on that $20,000 a year staying level. And um, 
a good analysis will be able to show, but he might be in an okay place. He'll mm-hmm. still have a million and a half of available assets uh, based on what he said to cover his needs right now. Just monitors the only thing that I can think of. Mm-hmm. But uh, if interest rates do get a lot higher, um, I would look at an, an annuity again, uh, but that's going to be, be up to you. Yep. Anyways, that's what I had. Okay. Yeah, good set of questions today. Um, if you want to send in your own questions for consideration on the future shows we're going to put out, um, just email those questions directly to Jim, jim at jimhelps.com. And then in the subject line, make sure you indicate it's a question for the podcast. Sounds like we have plenty of Social Security questions to get through since you had a whole slew of them you were scrolling through in your email. So, yeah, well, uh, we still have a lot. I mean, we always have a lot. That's why I started doing two Social Security yeah. questions a week up from from just one. Got it. But, yeah, no, we, we have a, a nonstop supply of Social Security <laughs> questions. Don't worry about that. You, you won't run out. Okay. Well, um, Jim, you have a nice weekend. And everyone who's listening, if you're listening when it comes out on a Saturday, um, actually, it's coming out on April Fool's Day. So. Oh, wait a minute, wait, 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 before you go. Happy birthday to you. I'll, I'll spare everybody from the, the rest of it. <laughs> the day you are listening to this, if you're listening to it on April Fool's Day, otherwise known as April 1st, is none other than Mr. Christopher Stein's birthday. That is true. That is true. And I think you're, you're 49 now, right? Something like that. I know. I just know that I'm at the stage where each year that goes by now feels like two or three years of aging. So, um, you're what, dog aging now. That's I'm starting to, yeah, the acceleration on my, my physical aging, uh, is accelerating my, my mind. Um, I haven't noticed a whole lot. But, uh, yeah, I've certainly got sores and swelling and issues. <laughs> I, 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 I become much more easily hurt. I've noticed your that. Your physical aging yeah. is now exceeding your numerical aging. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. So, yeah, that, that ha- that's going to happen to me probably in another 10, 20 years as well. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Thanks for that, and uh, thanks everybody else for listening, and we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556.
The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor.